0: what does it mean to be smart? We know that human intelligence is responsible for the device you're listening to this podcast on. But lately, I've become intensely interested in the different forms intelligence takes. Specifically, the many thousands of ways that animals other than humans exhibit intelligence. Recent research into octopus have been turning up information so intriguing about how darn smart they are. That bits of it have made it into mainstream news. People have actually been talking about it to me at parties. Octopus have strategies, emotions, and individual personalities. And yes, certainly, intelligence. They're starting to sound a little bit like us organisms that dominate their environment and can adapt their skills to situations that they would never naturally encounter. And even though they live in the ocean, they can do some of the same stuff we do on land. One odd skill that octopus possess is that they can even tell us humans apart from one another. That's been tested in labs many times using different methods, and it's proven. Even though octopus evolved in an environment that we humans can't even live in, and arguably they'd have no reason to recognize us as individuals, they can identify us. One person for them is not the same as another. Sometimes they even treat people differently, lifting up their arms like a dog jumping up to greet its master for someone they love, or spraying water onto the back of a lab technician that they're not so crazy about. Why would that ability ever evolve? Since left to the natural order of things, an octopus should never even encounter a human, much less develop a relationship. Welcome to The Shape of the World. I'm Jill Riddell. I'm Janet Voigt.
1: I'm an associate curator at the Field Museum of Natural History here in Chicago. I work in the deep sea, and I study invertebrate animals, mainly mollusks, and the animals that live in the deep sea as well as their shallow water relatives.
0: How long have you been studying the deep sea, and in particular, how long have you been studying octopuses.
1: I would have to age myself if I told you how long I've been studying octopus, because I think it was 1983 that I started on octopus.
0: Sounds like I have the plural wrong. So the plural of octopus is also octopus. Is that correct? It's
1: like fish. If you have one fish, of course, you have a fish. If you have 25,000 of one kind of fish, you still call that fish. But if you have two fish and they're different species, you call them fishes. So the same way with octopus. But with octopus, I think what you're really asking is, shouldn't it be octopi?
0: Well, we grew up with that. That was sort of the convention at that time, wasn't it? Or you no? Know, no?
1: I don't know how you grew up,
0: but <laughs> we never had octopi. Really? Okay. It's It would have been, been a mode.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's because the derivation of the root, it should be octopuses or
0: octopodes. Since the majority of us humans have done little more than wade in the ocean, most of us are not at all clear on what's going on in there. Not knowing the plural of octopus was the least of it for me. Until I did the research for this episode, when I heard the word octopus, the image that came first to mind was one from a children's book, a cartoon octopus with a smile and eyelashes. And the word squid versus octopus? I had the vague idea that the two were interchangeable, close to synonymous. But octopus and squid are not the same. Octopus, cuttlefish, and squid all belong to a class of marine mollusks called cephalopods. And like us primates, cephalopods have about 300 different species within their kind, And also, like primates, cephalopods vary in size, in their case ranging from species only about one inch in length to ones 22 feet long. So from here on, when Janet drops in the word cephalopod, just think, oh yeah, right, that's the bigger group of animals octopus are part of. An octopus is a
1: cephalopod mollusk that has eight arms, and those arms
0: have muscular suckers. Muscular suckers, I love that word. I read that octopus have three hearts, and I heard that they have blue blood and color-changing skin so it can camouflage itself. Are those traits of a particular kind of octopus?
1: Those are traits of cephalopods. That's the way they're built. They used to, we're talking in the geological past, all have shells, like their brethren, the snails and the clams. But as time went on, some of them just, drop the shells. They found a way to do without. Hey, light. Light is the way to go. And because of that, perhaps, they're not as readily defended. That may have been a contributor to them evolving intelligence.
0: Because they had to be smart. To If they weren't going to be hiding in a shell all the time, they had to come up with some new clever ways to be able to survive.
1: If they weren't going to be a fish's dinner, they had to be fast. They had to be cryptic and they had to be smart.
0: What are some other remarkable things about an octopus that we just might not know about?
1: Their color change ability is phenomenal. And they can change color so readily because part of their brain is actually dedicated to saying, I'm gonna be this color now. They have nerves that go from the brain to the skin that enervate muscles that surround bags of colors, bags of pigments. And when the brain says red, all of the red pigment bags get stretched open, and the animal's red. If it said striped, and some of the species are striped, ta-da, just like that. They can make themselves striped? Well, some species are striped. Some species are polka dotted. A polka dotted species, I don't think, can get stripes. But it wouldn't want to. (laughs) If you could get polka dots, why would you pick stripes? (laughs) Well, maybe they think they'd be slimming.
0: (laughs) Having three hearts. That is one part of how radically different octopuses are made from the way we are made. We could spend this entire episode on why an octopus needs three hearts, or spend it all on how cool it is that they can change instantly from something beige and discreet into something with wild-colored spots. But let's focus on those brains. You know how dinosaurs were on the planet a really long time ago? Well, the length of time since we and octopus shared a common relative is twice as long ago as when dinosaurs were here. Our departure on the evolutionary tree goes way back. Evolution did not create intelligence one single time, like a total accident or miracle, and then spread it around among mammals and birds. Evolution created intelligence twice, in two completely separate and original ways. Octopus have been separated from our life history for 600 million years so they did not inherit their intelligence from us or us from them or both of us from a common relative. According to Peter Godfrey Smith, who wrote a book on octopus intelligence, the last relative we had in common with an octopus was a flat, worm-like creature that barely had a nervous system. Its neurons may have been partly bunched together at its front, but there wasn't even a brain there yet. So from that early, unpromising point in time, us humans, and those octopus split apart. We evolved separately, two different tracks of how intelligence might and did develop. Cliff Ragsdale, a researcher involved in the mapping of the octopus genome and a colleague of Janet Voight's, has compared octopus to aliens from outer space. He's noted that it may well be the case that here on Earth, We will never have intelligent aliens land in a spaceship, and even if they did arrive on Earth, probably they would not be terribly keen on having us cut them apart so we could study their brains. Cephalopods, Dr. Ragsdale says, are as close as we will ever get to alien intelligence. They're our only chance to study something genetically far removed from us and so, so smart. One of the things about
1: the octopus brain is that most of their nervous cells In the body aren't in it, each of the arms has a major nerve that is, to an extent, autonomous. And that is it makes decisions without consulting the brain.
0: Is it a stretch to say that there's a type of intelligence in its arms? Not at all. There's a story. I think it's from the 60s. And
1: I don't know if it's peer-reviewed or kind of like embellished over the years. But you take an octopus, nice, healthy, big one, chop off an arm. Give that arm, which is still moving, a piece of fish. That arm just passes it sucker to sucker right toward where the mouth should be. You take that piece of fish, dip it in quinine, which is bitter, and you give it back to the arm. The arm rejects it. It passes it the other way.
0: So it's still capable, even though it's not connected to a central brain or even to the rest of the organism, it's still capable of discernment. It's choosing which way to move it. With no input from the animal's official brain, the octopus arm autonomously made a decision. That would be like cutting off the arm of a musician and finding the arm could still play piano. Or it would be like discovering that the decision of whether to eat a piece of bitter chocolate was being made not by me exactly, not by my brain, but by my fingertips. And they do a lot of hiding, right? Because they're kind of vulnerable. They don't have like a big armor on the outside. Lots of videos of them hiding in interesting places and then pulling something over to make it look like, no, nothing here, nothing here to see. Octopuses have a one
1: cell thick epidermis. It's that and its ability to change color which protects them from predators. Once they're spotted, they can change color instantaneously. But if you think about the octopus life history, it really makes sense that they hide a lot so they can rest. So they need to grow big to escape from the risk of predation. And eat they do. Kill and eat, that's, that's the words to live by. And what do they eat? Anything they can that's smaller than them. In nature, those octopuses have to glob onto things, kill, and eat it so they get bigger fast. And they do that by maximizing what we call their gross growth efficiency. And that means that if you give them a pound of meat, they'll turn it into like a half a pound of octopus. Where if you give a pound of hay to a cow, maybe it'll put on an ounce. So they're really efficient machines to
0: grow. And they want to grow big so that nothing eats them. Right. It's the
1: size escape from predation. The bigger there are, the fewer things that can eat them and the more things they can eat.
0: What about their sex lives? How do octopus have babies and do they care for their young?
1: Females only lay one clutch of eggs in their entire lives. They mate promiscuously before then. And males, of course, will copulate with any female that will accept them as males. After the female's have started to spawn, they spend the rest of their lives sitting with their eggs, grooming them, guarding them, making sure they have plenty of oxygen. And about the time the eggs hatch, the females die. Can you
0: tell us some examples of octopus intelligence?
1: Well, there's the octopus who... uh, It's a classic story that's in captivity in an aquarium in a back room where they have many tanks. The octopus overnight crawls out, goes to another tank, eats the prime prey, like the scallops that were gonna be the star of the next day's aquarium show, goes back to his tank and goes, do, 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 not me, I'm, no, I'm hungry. Oh, my goodness.
0: And uh, when they... I've seen them open jars. That's oh something yeah, they, they can seem train to, to learn to do jars. quite well.
1: They can open childproof jars. They can... Uh, well, there was always Paul the Octopus who always picked the World Cup winner. What like, do you mean? Oh, supposedly this Paul the Octopus would be presented with the flags of the different teams that were competing in the days... Match for the World Cup, and he would always pick the one. Like I think it was Germany. <laughs> sure enough, Germany would win. So Paul was like, "Oh my goodness, is he? He's not even smart. He's got ESP." I think it was somebody from an international news organization, phoned me, and said, "Is Paul really? Does he really have ESP?" And I said, "No, I don't think so. Probably somebody." presented him a tin with a German flag on it, and it had his favorite food. And ever since then, Paul has said, show me that German flag, and I'm gonna get some chow in that one. So he preferentially (laughs) goes to that. Or perhaps it's the way the flags are arranged. Octopus eyes really pick up horizontal movements, so a flag with more horizontal stripes than vertical ones may preferentially catch their attention.
0: I've seen that they will pick up something to use for camouflage, a, a rock or a shell or something like that, and carry it with them, not just for one time use, but will continue to carry it with them if they think it's useful.
1: A coconut shell. Coconut most shell. often, yeah. Amphioctopus, I've forgotten the species name, the veined octopus. These guys live in an open, flat, sedimented habitat where there's not a lot of cover and they don't want to have to burrow in the dirt because it's dirt you know so they happen on uh, half of a coconut shell which oddly enough in all those pictures is sawed perfectly in half and it just fits them so they drag it around
0: do they build anything do they create any kind of structures
1: they will use what's available and with their siphon, their funnel, that is, they can basically excavate sediment from under a rock that's partially buried in sediment.
0: And do they ever live in communities, or do they try to avoid one another and each have their own territory?
1: Well, there is one report from Australia of octopus tetricus who lives in a place where there's a lot of scallop shells discarded. They've called it Octopolis it's made the news yeah and there's a extraordinary high density of octopuses there and i've talked to some of the people who contributed to that paper or co-authors and said you know if i take the cta subway at rush hour there's a lot of people there does that mean that i'm social or does it mean that I want to get from point A to point B, and the only way to do it is to get in that car with all those people? From the octopus perspective, is there, are those octopus saying, I want to find a place where I can be safe and I can rest and use my last meal to grow bigger? And in order to find a nice place, I'm going to have to put up with all these neighbors.
0: Is there an element of flocking behavior, elk or birds that sometimes flock together for safety. They'll make a large group so that even if a predator does manage to come along and kill somebody in the flock, the other individuals survive. We call it schooling
1: okay. in marine organisms.
0: And in octopus, I was
1: going to say not so much, but then I remember the Argonautas, the Argonauts, the paper nautilus. These are the animals who live in the sunlit waters, and females build this beautiful shell. Not in the way mollusks normally build shells, but it's secreted by some of their dorsal arms. I wish all those listening to this podcast could see me with my hand up over my head. The shell is secreted from that and actually serves as an egg case. There are reports, actually recent reports, that they form a string and they just ride on the waters and they're connected in a little chain. And it may be they are at the whims of currents, and there's places where two currents come together where there's increased
0: productivity. A lot of stuff comes there. So octopolis might be something like that too, where there might be a lot of resources or something that they need. There's a lot of shelter
1: availability, and it seems like having shelter available is something that's really important. An octopus at rest inside of a den can really relax. And when you're relaxed, you're putting more of the energy you've taken in in your diet into growth and less of it into paying attention, being on guard, so you can grow bigger faster.
0: So they want to grow rapidly, but how fast are we talking? Like how how long will an octopus live?
1: The average octopus species, maybe the whole lifespan is 1.5 years, 18 months it grows from two millimeters at that time to maybe a meter
0: oh my gosh they grow that much in that short of time
1: gross growth efficiency is incredible
0: that's amazing
1: they have a phenomenally rapid period when they're tiny they're doubling their body weight every two weeks i think don't quote me on that but it's phenomenal imagine you're an animal who goes through that type of a change. I mean, if you remember puberty when you had growth spurts, all of a sudden you go from just fitting in everything just the way you were to being incredibly awkward, knocking things over because your body's changed so much. You don't fit anymore. Well, the octopus is doing that, only of course without an internal skeleton, it's not knocking things over. But the den that it used last week doesn't fit anymore. It's got to find somewhere new. It's still under threat of predation because everything in the marine world that can wants to eat octopus because they're good. (laughs) So these animals are under this changing worldview all the time where from month to month, their bodies are so much bigger, they're experiencing the world entirely different way.
0: It's hard to imagine coping with that much change that fast.
1: I personally think that might be a contributor to the evolution of their intelligence, because they have to adapt to new situations. Because even if you're confronted by the same, I'd say, fish that you avoided when you were that big and you meet it as a full-grown animal, all of a sudden you're killing it instead of hiding from
0: it. What is a long lifespan for an octopus? The giant Pacific octopus
1: is probably three to five years old when it reaches its maturity. At the Field Museum, we have a life-size papier-mâché model of a giant Pacific octopus that was made in the 1880s. And it's sitting down as if it were just flat. It's 18 feet across. It's huge.
0: And it got that way in three to five years. Right. Because they're large. I just equated them with having a long lifespan. Most people do because,
1: as mammals, that's what's normal to us. Mm -hmm. We used to think that that must be the longest live saplopi because it's so big. But then a few years ago, Bruce Robeson and some colleagues from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute published on Octomom, who brooded her eggs for 53
0: months. So brooded her eggs, meaning she had already laid them and she was there just watching over them, waiting for them to hatch. For four and a half years or more. And that's a
1: deep-sea octopus. It's living in an environment that's really, yeah, pretty much... St- Solid 2 degrees Celsius temperature, 37 degrees Fahrenheit, about like the inside of your refrigerator. Their lives are very slow.
0: If they don't have any mate or partner to watch the eggs while they get some food, they, so she just sits there and waits for whatever comes close enough to be able to grab them without leaving the eggs?
1: No, once the octopus female has spawned her eggs or as she's getting broody, she stops eating and there's something like hardwired in the octopus female that once those eggs are there
0: that's her whole reality you're one of the few people in the world who's gotten to go down into the ocean in a submersible can you tell me what that's like
1: well i have to admit i've i've been so lucky i've had eight dives inside the alvin And what is that, the Alvin? Oh, the Alvin is the, currently it's the United States only research submarine. It allows three people to get into a sphere and physically descend to the ocean, to depths as great as 4,500 meters, and to spend hours there. Doing manipulations, one of those three is a pilot who's an experienced engineer who actually uses arms to collect or deploy equipment or whatever, and you can bring back samples, specimens. And at the end of the allotted time, based on the amount of power that's available, the submarine rises from the bottom and meets the ship at the surface the most beautiful blue water you ever want to see. And you're on station, so the ship isn't steaming anymore. And, okay, so you're going to dive in the Alvin. It's a a seven-and-a-half-foot diameter sphere. There's space, theoretically, for three people. Now, I'm six feet tall, so I don't quite think there's space for three people, (laughs) but you make it do. And uh, since there's no ladies' room, of course... You tend not to drink a lot of water. You definitely don't have coffee that morning.
0: And how long are you going to be down there?
1: Ideally, you'll be in the sub from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. So you're sitting inside there, and you're looking out. You see the waves on the viewport. And then when you're cleared to dive, over like five minutes, it gets darker. And about 250 meters depth, you might see the first bioluminescence a copepod.
0: And a bioluminescence
1: is what? It's biologically generated light. Animals who live inside the ocean, below the photic zone, that is where the sun shines, signal each other with light. So as you're descending, if you're in a productive area especially, you'll notice a place where there's conspicuously more bioluminescence. You have these animals just it seems like everywhere. And that's like being inside the Milky Way only like inside the Milky Way. And he, I like tell the pilot, I don't care how much batteries, turn on the lights, I gotta see what's out there. So he flips the lights on, there's nothing there you can see. And he turns the lights back off, got right, 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 I told you so. And all of the animals, all of the invisible animals flash in response to that incredibly bright light, and you keep sinking. And as you go down farther, you've gone through that layer, that deep scattering layer where the animals tend to concentrate. And it's actually that watery part of the ocean, between the top and the bottom and the sides, that's the biggest habitable area on our planet. There's people who don't even know there's animals who live there.
0: Many different species, many different kinds, and and vast numbers of each. They're invisible. You have to suspend disbelief. You can't it's, see them looking out the window.
1: No, no. They're so well adapted.
0: So how far down do you go in terms of uh, American forms of measurements like miles?
1: I personally have been to 3,270 meters, which is like two and... Three-quarter miles
0: under the ocean. Can I ask how deep is the ocean? I don't even know. Like, what is the deepest part of the The deepest
1: ocean? part is 11,000 meters. It's deeper than Mount Everest is tall. Wow. You could sink Mount Everest in this trench.
0: Wow. Does the ocean, when you're down there, when you're in the submersible, does it smell like anything?
1: It smells like the two guys you're in there with. <laughs> and the sound is you know, well, them, and then there's a CO2 scrubber.
0: Okay. What does it feel like on your body and to be in your body inside the submersible? Inside Alvin, it remains the
1: same pressure as outside Alvin. I don't know how that works either because all the weight of the water is pushing in on it, and it's a phenomenal weight. Do you feel vulnerable in there? Only when you calculate the amount of pressure on the outside. Once I did that, it was like three tons per square inch at the depth we were going to.
0: And I decided I wouldn't do that anymore. (laughs) Better not to know. So has it changed for you? I'm sure that it's probably not terribly common for women to be in this field even now. Um, When you were starting out, was it a lonely sport being a female marine biologist? I would say
1: there was was a lot of students in marine biology who are women. And as you go up in rank, there's fewer and fewer. There are women who are senior to me today, even though I'm really old. Uh, so when those have always been, it's so encouraging to see women who've made it, who are on top of the pile. It's pretty much with any field, you know, it's the leaky pipeline issue, where women do great in college, they do great in graduate school, Fewer of them finish to get a Ph.D., fewer of them move on to tenure-track jobs, fewer of those get tenure, fewer of those
0: last. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, Jill. This is Jill Riddell, and I hope this conversation with Janet helps you to see your arms in a whole new way. Join us for our next episode when I'll be talking with Jerry Edelman, the director of Open Lands, who had a vision about the problem of nature diminishing in cities.
1: Maybe it can reverse itself. It's not all going the wrong way.
0: And you'll hear how Jerry acted on that concept and reversed the trend. And until then, enjoy being on dry land under relatively less pressure. The Shape of the World is about nature and people and the world we share. It's a production of the Office of Modern Composition, a business that creates compositions and fosters composers. If you have a story to share, the Office of Modern Composition can help. They can go all DIY and teach you how to write and produce a story yourself, or they'll do the whole thing for you. Either way, you can end up with a permanent archival piece that presents your ideas and experiences. The Shape of the World is produced in the vital, vigorous, and beautiful metropolis of Chicago in the Prairie State of Illinois. You can find The Shape of the World on Instagram and on the website shapeoftheworldshow.com. There you'll find images from Janet's lab and a drawing of Janet by the artist Rose Curley, and much more. The Shape of the World's producer is Ari Mejia. The theme music is composed and performed by Brad Wood. Brad Wood. Thank you to today's guest, Janet Voigt, and the Field Museum of Natural History.